So for one booster or uh, something I had, I remember they put it on a sugar cube and that's how they administered it in the 60s. And that's also where the song A Spoonful <gasps> of Sugar came from with Mary Poppins. A spoonful of sugar helps the vaccine go down. No polio for you. No polio for you. <laughs> where were you when they needed to write that song? <laughs> Welcome to the Compendium, an assembly of historical moments throughout British history that ultimately mean that you can be thankful you are no longer disease-ridden, you have a job, and most likely you have all your own teeth. What happened in British history? Well, everything up until this moment, you have your own teeth. Because of everything that's happened up until this moment? Yeah. Are we by any chance discussing the NHS? So when this goes out, it will be the 75th anniversary of the NHS tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow? Yeah, the 5th of Oh, from the, what, the day that this goes out? Okay. Yeah. Ooh, and this episode's landing well. You, check you out, all well-timed and... I know, right? And culturally appropriate timing. <laughs> is that the correct time for that? I don't think it is. But if you are just tuning in, my name's Adam Cox. I am back in the hosting position after popular demand and the roaring success of my first hosting job. And I'm here to give a masterclass in GCSE history. I love how arrogant you are. You really think you're a roaring success? Um, yeah, after all the um, thousands of um, comments. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Kyle Reese, your co-host, and I'm the one who's not happy about it. <laughs> well, buckle up. I quite liked your last episode. Actually, it was pretty good on the Chippendales. Yeah, I think Very interesting. So. People did like it. They liked the change up in the dynamic. So good. a few comments that we did have, yeah, it was uh, a roaring success, I would say. So your your intro is valid. Well, good. I'm glad to hear. Um, so, well, today is going to be a bit different. There's not going to be any murders as such, but I think it's quite an interesting story. Um, and yeah, hence the reason we're doing it today is to celebrate the NHS turning 75. So basically, you put the variety in the Compendium podcast. I do. But before we dig into that this week, mm-hmm. have you got any news for us? Have I got any news? Not really. I mean, I was obviously doing the usual thing, browsing Reddit this morning. Or the hours and hours and hours that I spent laying in bed, which is great fun. I definitely recommend it. Um, and I came across this really random story about this guy who in China was going on a blind date with a woman. So like a chaperone, apparently had set him up. Okay. And he was waiting at the restaurant, waiting for this girl to arrive, right? The thing is, though, you always want to be the second to arrive because then you can just leave if you're not happy. Well, like hide in the... Well, see the person already there mm-hmm. and then, yeah, work out whether you want to go through it or not. Isn't that what you did with me? Um, so what was the story? <laughs> so, um, yes. So Mr. Lee, so he was waiting for his blind date to arrive and in walks Ms. Zhang. Not accompanied by her best friend or a nosy sibling, but 23 of her relatives all showed up. <laughs> To be on this date, but not just to spectate, but to actively take part part in the meal. <laughs> and they expected him to pay for the whole meal. <gasps> they rung up a bill of 20,000 like yuan, I believe is the, the currency they have there. Okay. And that's like 2,000 bucks. 2,000 pounds that they rung up 
as the bill. And this is just the first date. Well, the thing is, though, he left and left them with the bill. He refused to pay. Good. But they then tried to take him to court. And surprise, surprise, obviously, the court landed on his side. And, yeah, they said that he only had to pay for his meal and Mrs. Zhang's meal, which is like 1,400 yuan. And the rest of them could go screw themselves, I guess. That's hilarious. That's so rude. That is the cheek, the audacity to turn up and expect a free meal. The thing is, though, even if... Was he wealthy? Well, I don't know. 2,000 pounds for a meal. I guess the fact that he refused to pay for it, possibly out of principle, suggests otherwise. I just thought it seems quite presumptuous to do that in the first place, Mm. unless you know these people, obviously, I don't know, in different social circles to us, I'm afraid. Mm. Rude. (laughs) Rude. What have you got for us? Have you got anything or are you just going to dive in today? We're just going to dive in. Let's do this. Okay. So in today's compendium, we're going to take a stroll through the fascinating history of healthcare in the UK before the NHS came into existence. We will unravel key moments in time that led to its creation and just how important it was given the healthcare in place before it. Now, trust me, it wasn't pretty. (laughs) Well, I mean, I can guarantee I wasn't sitting there thinking that it was pretty in any way. Honestly. And also, one of the things that we will cover is this unique period in UK history where people went mad for dentures. Okay. Well, uh, that's just a little teaser for what's coming up. Thanks for that. (laughs) Um, God, I hope this is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. So as we mentioned in the beginning, tomorrow, the 5th of July, marks 75 years since the NHS first launched. So consider this episode a celebration of our beloved free National Health Service. Woo, NHS! Mixed with a free history lesson that will make you appreciate just how incredibly fortunate you are to have it. Boo, education! (laughs) But before we dive into the modern era, let's rewind the clock all the way back to the medieval period. Monasteries played a vital role in upholding the ancient healing practices that came before it. So back then, not everyone could afford a private physician uh, or infirmary, and so monasteries were the main place that people would seek free healthcare. Mm. Actually, we have one in Norwich, don't we? Do we? Yeah, behind the cathedral Mm -hmm. in Norwich, I think it's called like St. Mary's or something, there is that monastery uh, yes. where all the nuns and the monks would live and actually they offered basic health care then didn't they they did indeed yeah wow so and the, that was like 1200s right wasn't it it would have been and yeah. that is, is that considered medieval i think so wow it feels medieval nice so there was this element of free health care at this point in time but don't expect any miracles Healthcare in that time, as you might expect, it wasn't very advanced. Picture medieval towns devoid of sewage systems and fresh water supplies, resulting in a rather disgusting atmosphere in the streets. And um, people were dumping their garbage, human waste. And of course, there's a lot of disease going around. Mm. So it's safe to say that public health wasn't at the forefront of society back then. Within the walls of monasteries, you were not exactly treated to a fancy doctor who went to, you know, university and years of education. Instead, you'd receive treatment from individuals perhaps skilled in the art of hermal remedies. If you had a toothache, they would extract that. Mm-hmm. If you had a broken bone, well, if amputation wasn't the option, then they might give mending it a shot. And How would they, they mend it? Well, they would put, a, I don't know, like a plinth, a wooden plinth. A and plinth? To heal your wooden... A plinth. Do you mean a splint? A splint. I think it's a splint. A splint. What's right. a plinth then? Mm. A plinth is what you... It's a board of some kind, isn't it? Yeah, you know what I meant. Of course I knew what you meant. Yeah. Anyway, they'd they'd use that to fix broken bones. And actually, they didn't do a too bad job of fixing broken bones in those days. Hmm. When bodies have been exhumed um, and found from that period, 
they found okay what caused their death then it wasn't from broken bones actually they tend to be healed quite well so they actually they weren't too bad at that back then so they knew what they were doing they were even in the 12th century they did yeah um medicine remained fairly similar up until we skip to the next period of time during king henry viii's reign so between 1536 and 1541 he orchestrated the reformation and dissolution of monasteries The reason behind this was that the monasteries owned a staggering quarter of all cultivated land in England. And so by dissolving them, Henry could seize their wealth, the property, also whilst trying to go through his first time divorce with his wife, Catherine of Aragon. And it's common knowledge that's one of the reasons the Church of England was set up. Mm. So keeping the monasteries around was a bit of a constant reminder of Catholicism. And so Henry was all about forging a new path and getting rid of them. So with the monasteries out of the picture, local authorities and parishes had to step up and fill the healthcare void that was left behind. Now, let's fast forward once again, and this time to the mid-18th century. It was a period of change when larger hospitals began to emerge in the big cities. These institutions, known as voluntary hospitals, were typically funded by generous philanthropists. Did I say that right? Philanthropists. Philanthropists. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Philanthropists. I think I only have to say that two more times. But anyway, so donations and subscriptions would fund the hospital, and often doctors themselves offered their services free of charge. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it was free for everyone, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. In 1834, the Poor Law legislation is introduced. So, do you have an idea what the Poor Law was? So I'm assuming it's got something to do with the early state-sponsored socialism that the government put in for the super poor. Hence, out of that probably came the workhouses and the poor houses and the feeding of the needy and stuff like that. Have you read my notes? No, is that what that is? <laughs> Basically, yeah. Well, that came from the Jack the Ripper episode. Ah, uh, so, I should have remembered that. Mm, you, oh, the whole point <laughs> of these episodes, Adam, is for me to teach you something that you didn't know. I, I do. I did remember. I just, that was the one bit I didn't. Um, Fair enough. Under this new law, the poor in England were accommodated in workhouses where they received clothing, food, and some education for the children. The intention behind these workhouses was to reduce the costs associated with supporting the poor, removing beggars off the street, and incentivize the less fortunate to work hard and sustain themselves in exchange for some shelter and basic health care. However, many people viewed these workhouses as prisons for the poor, leading to actual riots. The conditions in these workhouses were awful, Families were often separated and placed in different sections of the facilities. And the workhouses operated in a factory-like system that exploited children and prioritised profit over addressing the issues of poverty. So in this age of industrialization, these institutions fell short in providing adequate care and safety. Mm. So at this time, there are two systems operating, the services for the very poor by the poor law and the voluntary hospitals where the more respected working class among the richer folk could seek treatment. As I mentioned earlier, the concept of doctors working without charging fees was not necessarily an act of generosity. By offering these services for free, doctors gained access to a broader range of patients, exposing them to a wider variety of symptoms and illnesses. And so this exposure allowed them to enhance their learning and basically enabled them to kind of specialise in different areas of medicine. And then through that specialization, doctors can then attract paying clients because they become a specialist in being a foot doctor or an Mm -hmm. optician, etc., So these specialisms start to develop in the early to sort of mid-19th century. The availability of different treatments varied depending on where you were in the country and also your financial status. So if you're in a local hospital, chances are you're not going to have that much treatment. You're just going to be basically attended to make sure you're comfortable. 
But if you obviously live closer to a city, then chances are you're going to get better treatments. And how much did that treatment vary? Like if you've just been attended to, are you just like, here's a pillow, here's a bed, sleep it off. And whereas close to the city, you might get some actual pain medication and they might actually like treat your wounds and things like that. Is that the kind of thing that we're talking about? In the bigger cities, you perhaps get some basic drugs. If you're paying money in the local areas, then chances are, yeah, you're perhaps made to feel comfortable. Maybe they're the herbal remedies that they still relied upon, things like that. You wouldn't necessarily have a great chance of healing or getting better in some mm. of these institutions. So in order to be admitted into these voluntary hospitals, you would need to get a ticket or a referral to the hospital. To get this ticket, you had to either give a financial contribution Perhaps you were employed by a big enough employer that could refer you. Um, or you might know someone that has a high standing in society, perhaps a doctor or a hospital owner. In essence, it boils down to influence of money or personal connections to get good health care at this point. Another way is if the doctor perhaps selfishly wanted to advance their own career and they would take you on as a specialism because they, you know, you're a, you've got an interesting disease. Um, and so therefore... Like- butt cancer or something exactly that if you've got butt cancer and they've never seen that before and they specialize in cancer then they want you on their books Mm. the exception being if there was a genuine emergency and you're you know you're dying you're bleeding out in the streets then they would take you in but then afterwards they would be like so who's going to pay for this oh and so they'd have to then find a way to do that Mm. cover the cost in your desperate moment you're feel like you've been held over a barrel and you need like your butt cancer treated so then you'll like do anything because you're desperate and then boom you for the big bill you might have to go sweep chimneys or something are we still in the victorian area at this point we are yeah it wasn't until the early 20th century though um so still a while before the nhs was formed you start to see a shift from this sort of patronage system to actually doctors giving medical access based on needs of patients they Mm. actually go like well actually you're seriously ill maybe i should treat you During the 19th and early 20th centuries, there were diseases around. And so these ones were pretty horrible. um, And thankfully, now they've actually been eradicated or significantly reduced. So among those diseases at the time were diphtheria, tuberculosis, industrial illnesses, such as things known as black lung, which you would get from being in the mines or unclean factories. So these are the things that are going around. Yeah. And what about diphtheria? What is diphtheria? I think it's to do with sanitation. Mm. I can't remember exactly. Chewy, can I Google it? You can. So it says that diphtheria is a serious infection caused by strains of bacteria called Chironbacterium diphtheria and can lead to difficulty in breathing, heart rhythm problems, and even death. It's spread by coughs and sneezes or through close contact with someone who's infected. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty nasty back then. Like I said, it wasn't pretty. I did warn you. Do you think I can call up work tomorrow and go, guys, I can't come in. I've got diphtheria. <laughs> They're gonna like, get... All right, Oliver, calm down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not that bad, Annie. <laughs> so these diseases were often associated with poverty and the lower class. Mortality rates were also really high and children suffered from malnutrition, leading to ailments like rickets. I remember hearing about rickets. That bendy bones, isn't it? Yeah. So like you've been riding on a horse. Yeah. So you didn't really grow up. Well, yeah, you didn't have the best nutrition. You perhaps are a bit deformed as you were growing older. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, there's no vitamin D pills were there at that point in time. So yeah. No, all that smog over London, like I need some sunshine. Yeah. 
So these infectious diseases in particular were a problem and um, things like measles and then scarlet fever and smallpox were also pretty rampant at this point. For the young adults, tuberculosis was probably one of the highest killers Mm. and this caused the government concern because it was taking adults out of the workforce because they either some long-term health issues or worse, they died. Got to think about the taxes. Exactly. Who's going to do the jobs? Yeah, exactly. In the factories. Mm. So the government wanted to support with the introduction of isolation hospitals, which were mandatory to, to go to. And there was an, this kind of change in opinion with people. They didn't really want the government getting involved in their daily lives. But these, these isolation hospitals, people actually began to appreciate because they're like, actually, they're the best thing for the sick patients. Mm. And they're keeping the healthy still healthy. It's always those blurred lines, isn't it, between, oh, we really care about the people, but actually, no, they care about the economy. Mm. And this, yeah, this is kind of what leads to the NHS, actually, um, which we'll obviously come on to. Maternal mortality rates were also very high at this point. So chances of survival were so much lower than they are now. So to give you an idea, in the last few years, there's about 11 deaths that occur in every 100,000 maternities. In the 1900s, this was about 228. So that was quite a lot. Mm. Even back then, that was considered quite good because if you go back another 40 years to 1860, um, you're looking at around about 450 deaths every 100,000. And one of the reasons was less than 40% of births actually had a midwife in attendance. Wow. So things started to improve as we move on to 1910. And if you were working and your salary was under a certain amount, you started to pay a contribution under the National Insurance Act. So oh, that's where that little bugger came from. It did, yeah. It was introduced in 1911. Um, and it was brought in by a guy called Lloyd George. And he Oh, had, I thought it was brought in by Mr. National Insurance. No, it's that's not a real person, Kyle. <laughs> Normally these things are named after someone, aren't they? Yeah, you're right. Sure. But no, not in this instance. Um, but actually, Germany was the ones that pipped us to it. They actually had already done this in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. And so we basically followed what they did. And the whole point was to give the UK working class protection against illnesses, particularly tuberculosis, unemployment, as well as maternity benefits, you know, all the kind of key issues that were affecting the bigger population. So you would pay in a certain amount per week, and the employer also then contributed. So exactly the same as it happens now. Um, but the downside is only the worker would have access to this doctor. Your family and your kids wouldn't. And also, if the person's income exceeded the wage limit, then they faced penalties and were denied access to health care. Hang on. If they were paid too much, they didn't get any health care? Yeah, you had to be. It's very much like Goldilocks. You had to be paid just the right amount in order to get this national health insurance care. Otherwise, you then for it yourself exactly that was the idea okay yep. okay so that's fine so it's designed for the working class or the lower working class that's right yeah okay so rather than the rich people exploiting it and taking advantage of it the very rich were probably okay but the middle class even still struggled to go to the doctors because it would cost them around about three to six pence every visit so that's quite a lot back then mm. so say if you were middle class then chances are you couldn't use the National Insurance Act, and you may or may not have been able to afford going to a family doctor. I see. And also remember, this is still covering workers, it's not covering your family at that point. Mm -hmm. Okay. Whilst the National Insurance Act wasn't suited necessarily to helping everyone, this did start to progress things in getting the future health service in place. So when Britain was recruiting for the First World War, it was highlighted that the general poor health of the men signing up 
was pretty bad. Um, and it wasn't the first time either. It was actually after the Boer War in the 19th century that there was a lot of concern for future generations. And actually, a lot of men were rejected from joining the army because they just weren't fit and healthy. Mm-hmm. You would think, especially during the First World War, they would want to take as many people as they can. But if people are being you know, rejected from that as well, like... It's hard. Dating expectations back then must have been well low. Like, I just want a man who's got teeth. Or, or legs. Or legs. His own legs. <laughs> Not someone else's legs. Um, God, people nowadays have it so good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was at the end of World War One that the country was looking to how they're going to rebuild. And the Ministry of Health was first established in 1919. And so that same year, a guy called Sir Bertrand Dawson was commissioned by the new Ministry of Health to chair a council devised on a systemized provision of health services. Mm-hmm. There was a report that he helped produce in 1920, which was this bold outline about this national health service linking hospitals to a single system, which was ultimately the initial plan for the NHS. Uh-huh. So he sort of outlined doctor surgeries, primary health care, you know, having sort of emergency and then like, I guess, specific uh, institutions that would look after certain diseases and things like that. So essentially everything that the NHS would go on to be, but the UK was not ready for something at this time. Healthcare was improving to some extent, but I guess the main challenge was that there were various segments of the population, such as the very poor, children, women and workers, they all faced different challenges at different times accessing the right care. If we jump forward almost 20 years to 1939, the emergency hospital service was established at the outbreak of World War II across the country. And It was done on the basis to provide hospital care for civilian casualties of air raids. This became a bit of a blueprint of how the NHS could work. So this war brought about a profound realisation that the country would undergo a big change. And it wasn't until the destruction and loss of life and the political and social transformation that was taking place that people were, I guess, this shift in public opinion towards what was needed, what they wanted in the country and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and care. Because actually, with the bombings, um, it was felt by all members of society at the time. The upper, middle and working classes were equally vulnerable to the bombings. And so what it meant is that all these civilians were supporting one another. Where They were going to the shelters to keep safe. They were checking in on families after each raid. And so this collective spirit and mindset of this mutual aid became sort of ingrained in the British society And so even after that war, people wanted that change because, you know, if you're sending your kids off into the country to live with some other family, you were getting exposed to different walks of life. Mm -hmm. And so that really helped bring together this kind of sense of unity across the country. So when this unity across the country was forming, a man named William Beveridge, he was a bit of a social policy expert and He was ahead of this committee, which was responsible for investigating social security in Britain. And what he identified were five major problems which prevented people from bettering themselves. And these were called the five giant evils in society. Okay. So number one was want. Mm -hmm. And that was caused by poverty. Because you can, you know, you can progress, you can get what you wanted. Ignorance, which was caused of a lack of education. Squalor, which was caused by poor housing. Idleness caused by a lack of jobs or the ability to gain employment, and then disease, which was caused by inadequate healthcare provision. So these five things, in order to kind of better society and people, you need to be able to tackle all these things. They're all awful. They're all crap as well. Like, what's the stuff about the poor houses? 
So the squalor, right? Caused by poor housing. But it's not caused by poor housing, all right? The poor houses are there to try and help the people that are already living on the streets and in genuine real squalor, right? Mm -hmm. Who don't have anything. What a load of old crap. (laughs) Well, his recommendations were for a system that would be able to solve all those things. So it would have to be comprehensive and cover all problems relating to poverty from birth to death. Mm -hmm. It had to be universal. It had to be done through a contribution system, so paid via wages, and non-means tested, so it had to be available to all, even if they were unable to pay in themselves, Mm -hmm. and compulsory. All workers were to contribute into this system. So regardless of whether or not you were rich or poor, or regardless of class or whatever, you'd pay for it, and that sounds like the NHS. And so this system didn't come into place until Labour were actually in power. So this whole change that the country wanted, particularly post-war Britain, um, people sort of suggest that if it wasn't for Labour, this wouldn't have happened at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's one of the reasons they actually got into power, because it was part of their mandate. So the new NHS was to be funded through income tax, which the rich paying proportionally more, while all users of the NHS were to receive the same level of service. So on the 5th of July 1948, the NHS properly launches in England and Wales. Um, Nothing really changes on day one as such, but the NHS takes control of all the beds in England and Wales, all the nurses, all the consultants and doctors under this one system. Now, the first person that was ever admitted to hospital on the NHS was a... Your mum. It wasn't. It was actually a 13-year-old uh, girl called Sylvia Beckingham. Um, she had a liver condition, and Ooh. she was the first ever patient to ever be treated on the NHS. Wow. People hadn't had a doctor before, and so this was quite a, it was a significant thing. Um, and it played a crucial role in convincing the remaining doctors to join, because once they could see the patients that they have, they basically saw you know, pound signs um, because of how much money they could make with the additional reach of people they could treat. On the other hand, dentists were slower to sign up. Only about 25% initially were on board. Um, However, there was an enormous demand for dental services in the UK. So prior to the NHS, if people had dental issues, the most affordable option was... Mm -hmm. Get it yanked out? Yeah, exactly that. So there wasn't any sort of specific treatments or anything. The, The best thing to do was to get rid of them and have dentures. So with the launch of the NHS, the number of patients dentists saw skyrocketed. And it was a bit of a game changer. Because in the first year alone, a staggering 33 million pairs of dentures were issued under the NHS. Wow. 33 million. And this was free. Yeah. And the population at the time was around about 50 million. Wow. That's crazy. Most people had dentures. Yeah, or had really bad teeth. And so this was now an opportunity to have a good smile or at least be able to chew your food. Yeah, what kind of dentures were they? Were they like full set of dentures or were you just talking would it be like some prosthetic dentures where you just have the one or two, three teeth or... Not too sure, but it does say pairs of dentures and I imagine it's probably going to be, wow. you know, half to a full set. Mm, I wonder what life must be like if you just don't have the option... To chew? To chew or to have a pretty smile or it's a lot of uh, liquid foods gross or pre-chewed foods hey jimmy <laughs> like um i've got mama's got your dinner on the table chewed it for you gross mm, it's yeah. rank <laughs> so very quickly this free healthcare was actually becoming unsustainable the budget for dentures was 
way lower than what people were getting. Um, but there was a bit of a stigma, actually, with people accepting free healthcare. They didn't necessarily want to join, or some people thought, like, actually, they didn't want to be seen by their neighbours and signing up because it was, like, charity. So whilst you had a lot of people taking advantage quite early on... Yeah, they're happy to take the teeth, though, aren't they? Yeah, but you had to do it secretly. Wow. So that was... Where did that come from? Is that, like, a pride thing, do you think? I don't know. Is that a typical British thing? You don't want people knowing your business too much, but you like a good deal. Mm. (laughs) So things haven't changed. No, they haven't. (laughs) So originally, the vast majority of prescriptions were also free. And now some of the things you could get on prescription was stupid. For example, you could get cotton wool on description. What? For what though? For like treating wounds? Well, there was this one instance of a doctor. He tells a story that he just couldn't understand what a patient was doing with all this cotton wool that he was getting. Well... Do you want to know what it was? Yes. He was using it on his greyhound to treat wounds, cuts. I don't know. Oh, it's not for dogs. <laughs> it's not for dogs. <laughs> so I, I guess maybe it wasn't necessarily perhaps thought out mm. as, you know, two or three steps further down the line in terms of what was needed for the NHS initially. So, yeah, people started to abuse the system just a little bit. Sounds that unintentional, though, like not knowingly going out to defraud the NHS of Cottonwall. Well, no, but you can't really blame them. They see something and they they go ahead with it. It's true. There was also a huge demand for free glasses from opticians. Mm -hmm. So much so that the waiting time to get your glasses after your initial prescription was so long that by the time you received them, your eyesight had changed. Really? So like more than two years sometimes? It was a long time. I don't know exactly, but one of the reasons was people wanted glasses, not because they needed them, because they were fashionable. Really? Yeah. So it was this kind of thing with the cotton wool, the dentures and the glasses, things had to kind of change. But I do find it funny how we're led to believe that people of today are accused of exploiting systems and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But back then, you know. Just the same, it's all human nature. Yeah. But it's early days in the NHS, it's still finding its feet. So as you can imagine, the NHS starts to bring in charges. It has to do these things in order to... I guess, one, discourage people from abusing it and B, to make sure that they can maintain this service. Mm-hmm. So one of those things was prescriptions. Um, I think people complain about prescription charges now, but it's important to note that even today, out of over 1 billion prescriptions that are dispensed in, well, in 2019 this was, mm-hmm. close to 90% were provided free of charge. Wow. So even though you might be paying for a little bit of this, it's kind of heavily subsidized or mm. actually there is still a lot that's given out for free. Yeah. Other things I found quite interesting in its early years was there was no disposable utensils because I guess plastic wasn't probably as big of a thing back then. Mm-hmm. Utensils for like cutlery. <laughs> I'm guessing scalpels, <laughs> things like oh, okay. that. I don't know. Are scalpers, scalpels Oh, of course. I guess they are disposable, aren't they? Uh, yeah, Can't be reusing them again and needles and things like needles, that. Needles, because they were like metal syringes originally, mm. weren't they? Um, those I think it's just when you call them utensils, it's just, I feel like, hmm, you have a curry. <laughs> um, you mean like instruments? I guess, yeah, like bedpan things, you know, they're Ooh. kind of... Yeah. Well, you definitely want to reuse that. Well, they're throwaway, some of those things are now, aren't they? But, yeah, the paper ones yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. Right? Ooh. Um, uniforms couldn't be worn outside because of fear this could cause infection. You see people in their scrubs now, but that wasn't a thing Mm -hmm. back then. Um, And most importantly, there were no shortages of nurses or beds. Wow. (laughs) 
With the huge increase in patients across England and Wales, the NHS needed to recruit more doctors and nurses. Mm -hmm. So in the early 1950s, male nurses only accounted for around about 7% of the nursing workforce. And this actually has only increased to around about 11% today. Um, But male nurses often found themselves involved in military care or mental institutions, and they faced kind of different training and a societal sort of stigma, um, which I guess sometimes people still think, oh, male nurse. Well, yeah, because it's women tend to be tend to be statistically more attracted to jobs in care. They're more nurturing, mm-hmm. like people. Yeah, men like things, right? They like engineering and they like mechanic stuff. Yeah, so not a bad thing. I mean, and it's not, not a hard and fast rule for everyone. Hence, why we have seven percent of men and thirteen percent of men now that are. In healthcare. One thing I did find out, though, um, was initially men couldn't be a midwife, which they can do today. It wasn't until the Sexual Discrimination Act in 1975 that they were allowed to become midwives because there was a thought that men could get, you know, aroused over a woman giving birth. Ooh, a crowning. Ooh. <laughs> which <laughs> so good. I mean, maybe... I Don't put it past everyone. Maybe someone out there does, but that's kind of a Eesh. very general... Yeah, comment. It is unusual, though, to think of having a, a male midwife. Always is called a midman, mid-husband. <laughs> a mid-husband. That's true. Although mm. I do know someone that was a midwife, and really? he was a man. Male. Well, not was, was a man, he and still is he, a man. <laughs> is he still, was he called a midwife? I don't know. I'm going to ask him when I next see him. Yeah, okay. I'll find out. I'll mm. come back to you, listeners. Um, so during the late 1950s and 1960s, there was a significant recruitment drive in the West Indies, inviting individuals to train and work as nurses in the UK. Unfortunately, though, I didn't know this, the qualifications that were obtained in the UK were then not recognised if they wanted to go back home. So they couldn't just go back home very easily to be with their families after training in the UK. Wow. They then had to learn a different system, I guess, or different expertise. And so that's why some of them remained here because they still needed jobs but then didn't the conservatives try to send them all back like in the early 2010s they were called the windrush generation yeah from the west indies and they'd all like people they came over from like jamaica and things like that and then they were trying to send them back but they couldn't even go back in the first place well in this i mean they could go back but they wouldn't necessarily have the right job or you know be able to carry on obviously their the thoughts about well, the Caribbean and the UK and the colonialism, not great right now, but hey. No. So with a lot of these nurses that have come from the West Indies, that contributed, I guess, to the increase in diversity of mm-hmm. the nursing workforce over the past 50 to 60 years. But sadly, discrimination based on skin colour was prevalent. A lot of patients were refusing care purely based on nurses' skin colour, which I oh, think really? is really sad. Mm. Uh, these people had come over, they'd uprooted either their families or they'd come over by themselves to care and they provide a crucial role in our healthcare system, but they weren't treated with respect. But it was a, a sad moment in history um, and mm. it wasn't limited to just nursing, it was in other industries as well. Throughout the history of the NHS, the rollout of vaccines has been a key part and the NHS has been instrumental in that, as you most recently remember with the COVID-19 vaccine. So a lot of the public were sceptical about the new rollout of vaccines um, because, you know, studies hadn't been done, were they safe? And so even with the polio vaccination, which NHS was key in rolling out, people were reluctant to take that initially. 
really, even considering like what polio visibly can do. Well, exactly. The, the alternative is that you're in an iron lung yeah. and you can't move. You're in isolation a lot of the time. Wasn't it recently like the last surviving iron lung patient died? Really? Yeah. So he contracted polio when he was a young kid. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he was interred into an iron lung. And that's where he spent pretty much all of his life, just laying vertical in an iron lung. I think sometimes in the early stages of having polio, sometimes you would only need to spend a few hours mm-hmm. in it per that's day, right. but then you could kind of come out. But then as time goes on, like your diaphragm just doesn't work at all. And then you are just in an iron lung all day, every day, forever. You live your whole life in this iron lung. So it's a big old tube with your head sticking out and you all you have is mirrors positioned around so you can kind of look at things, maybe what the telly or something like that. And if you're a kid, how how sad yeah. that is. And Awful. then to have your whole life sort of spent in that. But thanks to, well, the vaccine and the NHS rollout, mm. as you just said, like that's the last person. Now, you know, we don't really see that in the UK now. But the thing is, though, you have these movements that are happening all the time where people are going against or deciding not to take vaccines. Mm-hmm. And all it takes is for another resurgence of polio for things to change. I know, I don't think, I think I've had a polio vaccine when I was a kid. I don't I, know if kids have it nowadays because because it's eradicated now. It's not a problem. But if it does come back and the appetite or because we have these movements where people distrust vaccines, mm-hmm. it could come back with the vengeance. Wave two. People quickly forget. People don't learn from history, do they? That's true, yeah. Make the same mistakes. Do you, did you have a, because you grew up in South Africa, did you have it on a sugar cube? That you ate? No, I don't think so. I remember having it like they would, I don't, I think there's more than one that you have. So for one booster or uh, something I had, I remember they put it on a sugar cube and that's how they administered it in the 60s. Wow. Uh, and that's also where the song well, it was inspired by this. The song A Spoonful of Sugar came from with Mary Poppins. A spoonful of sugar helps the vaccine go down. No polio for you. No polio for you. <laughs> Where were you when they needed to write that song? <laughs> and that's just one example of how the NHS has helped eradicate diseases. But another key point in NHS history was the release of the pill in the early 60s. Now, at first... Well, the contraceptive pill. That's or just the one pill that the whole country had to share. <laughs> <laughs> Let's like split it up, everyone. <laughs> everyone gets a little bit. <laughs> the contraceptive pill, yes. Thanks Ooh. for clarifying. Well, they say like the contraceptive pill is the single thing that has changed our social structure than anything else in recent human history. In what way? In that it's given women more like freedom to be able to have more control over their destiny, Mm. which I think is fascinating. Well, there was a concern when it was first introduced that it actually could lead to promiscuity. Well, it did, in a sense. I mean, that's why we had the sexual awakening in the 1960s, right? Free love and stuff, because people were now all of a sudden free of these consequences. I mean, it's not an unfounded concern, but is it a bad thing? Well, no, I'm not saying it was a bad thing, but at the time, not every woman could have or was allowed the contraceptive pill. Oh, right. So it was only prescribed to married women. They were the ones that were eligible because they perhaps had already had a family. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps they were too old to be starting a family. And so it was, yeah. you know, to, to care for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why, because 
like I said, the government didn't want to be promoting promiscuity. So to get around this, though, which I really loved, women who were younger would just turn up, they'd wear a wedding ring. Or funnier yet, there's reports that these women are in the waiting room and they're just passing around this wedding ring. One ring. Between them, basically (laughs) get the pill prescribed. Wow. So you didn't need to have to bring in like your marriage certificate or like your husband. Can you imagine if you had to bring your husband and they're all just in the waiting room sharing around the one man? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is my husband, Tim. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. That'd be quite a funny sight. But they also say, interestingly enough, they say that statistically more abortions are administered to women who already have kids, so married women Mm. in their 30s, because they've already had their 2.3 kids, right? Or whatever the statistic is now. Fascinating. Yeah. So I don't know when that changed, but obviously it it did, which is good. (laughs) Um, Moving on to what I think is one of the next big milestones in the history of the NHS, and indeed the world, was the emergence of the AIDS health crisis in the 1980s and early 90s. Interesting. So prior to COVID-19, pandemic this was the this epidemic was the biggest thing that the nhs faced since its exception Mm. initially referred to as the gay plague there was a misconception that it was a type of gay cancer based on early reports from the united states but in 1983 there were 14 reported cases in britain all among predominantly gay men and then from that point the number of cases sort of escalated rapidly and affected a lot of young men and they succumbed to the disease shortly after being diagnosed. So there was a lot wow. of death. By the late 80s and early 90s, there were significant advancements in treatments that would extend the lives of those affected. But these antiviral therapies often came with some toxic side effects. Mm. And you'd have to be on the strict schedule in order to take it. So people would set their alarm clock for like 3 a.m. in the morning yeah. to take these pills. A cocktail of drugs, they would call it. Yeah. I mean, even right up until like the early 2000s, I knew someone who was HIV and I'd never ever met anyone or come across anyone who was living with HIV until we were at a festival one day. And I remember them sitting on the grass and they had a little baggie, which they were then opening up and then taking all the pills that they needed to take. And there was a lot of them. Mm. And as far as I'm aware, I think that's like cut down massively, even just in the last 10 years, like the amount of drugs that people have to take. Well, it's just cut down. It is. And actually, there's a really cool fact that I'll come to in just a sec about that. I mean, the AIDS crisis was really before our time. So we've never mm-hmm. really been exposed and how it affected. We've heard stories from you know people that lived through it. We've seen it represented on TV. And a lot of the nurses that were nursing at that time, they recount stories that are very similar to what we see on TV shows like It's a Sin and things like that. They said yeah. it was very much like that. There was a ignorance and a lack of understanding. So these patients would be locked up in hospital rooms, denied care and kept at arm's length in fear that they would be contagious because they didn't know how it would be transmitted. But one nurse, Sue Carrington, worked on a hospital ward in Bristol from 1978 to 1990. And she was on the front line dealing with it. And she was saying there were silly anesthetologists who wore full protection gear unnecessarily in front of AIDS patients they wouldn't like spend time with them they wouldn't have conversation and so she found it heartbreaking that they're being neglected I mean I completely get it and it's heartbreaking to think Mm. that right but at the time even when the research first comes out to say actually you can you can only get it by exchanging fluids or through being exposed to their blood and things like that and that getting into you but still like there's still that uncertainty right people see the state that some of these people are in especially towards the end 
So I'm not angry at these anesthetologists for wanting to take this precaution and wanting to protect the family. I get it. Well, you only have to think about COVID-19 when we first started seeing those images on the TV of what was happening in China Mm -hmm. and how they were all protected because no one knew the severity of this illness. That's, I guess, our closest way of seeing what was happening at that point. Sure. But thankfully, things did change. And one thing that you might remember, and quite famously, Princess Diana in 1987 opened a hospital ward in Middlesex Hospital, which was the first dedicated ward caring for HIV patients. How old do you think I am? You just said, I may remember. I'm sorry. In terms I'm of- not going to remember that. <laughs> I was even barely born. You will have seen pictures or images on TV, most famously, I think, when she's shaking hands and showing that you can have skin contact. Sure. Was it that late? I didn't realize it was that late. In 1987, wow. That's well, that's when that um, ward was first opened. Sure, I see. Okay, good old Princess Diana. There was a nurse on that particular ward, Jackie Elliott, and she decided to break the mould and all the stuffiness that was associated with the NHS and maybe just society at that point. And so she encouraged her staff to engage with the patients and their partners. She turned a blind eye to regulations and she would allow them to bring in food and sit with them and everything. So it seems quite a nice story how she wanted to be different. Yeah, for sure. And I like that because I think when you understand the consequences of having AIDS at that time, it's a death sentence, right? So at this time, I bet she just understood that it was all palliative, right? Bring your family in, like spend time with them, show them that you love them, touch them. Like you've got nothing to be afraid of. Like these are human beings. They want to be, they want to be comforted. They want to be told that they'll be missed. They want to be told that it's going to be fine. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. And and remember, good old Jackie. Good old Jackie. Where is she now? Um, I don't know. Maybe she'll be listening. Maybe. Hi, Jackie. So the treatment all this time, from what I can understand, again was all free, and. In fact, one of the biggest drugs to prevent the transmission of HIV and AIDS is PrEP. So pre-exposure prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. And that started as a trial in 2017 on the NHS. Wow, that late? 10,000 patients, I think, were put on this. Mm -hmm. But it's now freely available on the NHS to those vulnerable of contracting AIDS. And that was in 2020. Wow. Um, And what I find, this is the fun not the fun, but th- something to feel proud of. I AIDS think. is fun, kids. <laughs> there was a report published in October 2022 that the NHS in England is on course to become the first country in the world to stop new cases of HIV before 2030 by offering a full sort of suite of these HIV busting drugs. Wow. So once again, that's another reason to be proud of our NHS For wanting sure. to do this. Yeah, it's a big killer, AIDS. Yeah. And so bringing up to the most recent events, as we sort of touched on, and the biggest challenge that the NHS has ever faced is COVID-19. As we all know, the pandemic affected everyone globally and not just the NHS. And so many countries responded excellently in this, and this was the word of the time, unprecedented time in history. Mm, Yeah, we always remember that. It's unprecedented (laughs) times, guys. You can't go for that walk. You've already been out today. Yep. And so the funding allocated to the NHS in recent years has not kept pace with the rising costs, population growth and other factors. So the healthcare system wasn't necessarily in a great place or prepared to take on this additional work of a huge pandemic. And so it it highlighted perhaps the lack of proper care and planning Mm -hmm. in being able to deal with this as well as it perhaps could have done. Mm -hmm. However, having said all that, 
you know, there's a still controversy going on surrounding Boris Johnson and his cabinet of what they did during this period. But here's some things about how the NHS did cope. They gave free access to mental health and well-being apps. They initially did free testing at home in all the COVID centres that mm-hmm. you could just go online and get delivered to you or turn up with an appointment and get those tests done. It set up the Nightingale Hospital in London. Oh, yeah. Um, it fed into the various data and reporting. You know, we had those daily updates and it would obviously give the data on how many people were infected and yep. everything else. As of September 22, over 151 million vaccinations were given and 93% of the population over 12 had received at least one dose. So that's a 151 million vaccinations in the space of what, three years? Yeah. And they're still doing spring boosters now. So my parents are still getting them. We haven't been sent a letter to go and get ours. It's Do been... we not get one because we're not over a certain age? That's right. We're not old and vulnerable yet. Yet. There's still time. And so just think of all the frontline staff that helped to keep us safe. And we would go outside our doorsteps yeah, yeah. and thank them every Thursday. Bang some pots. Bang some pots. Cheer for everyone. Yeah, we're not going to forget that. I wonder if any other country did that. Yeah, I don't know if we were the only ones. But I do remember we would go out on a Thursday and we would very obviously see our neighbours across the road that weren't standing at their front door. Do you remember? No. <laughs> <laughs> But it was. It feels a bit like a weird fever dream, that whole period. It was. Because saying that out loud just seems quite odd. It seemed so bizarre. But yeah, you do remember what I mean. Like people, you'd be outside and you'd be like taking note, like oh, yeah. side-eyeing people going, oh yeah, number number 78 is not there. Yeah, you'd, you'd I wonder clock, where they are. You would definitely clock those that weren't there. Or mm. you'd get there out too late and people are shutting the door and you just give a couple of claps to go, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm not sure we were the best at it, to be fair. Well, I mean, after you've done it a few times, you're like, "Mm, is this really what nurses want? Do they really want me to be (laughs) clapping on my doorstep for them? I think they would probably just want like a break and maybe some higher wages and all these other things that is probably going to help put like food on their table. Yeah. A stupid clap is probably not going to cut it. Yeah, I think it was appreciated to begin with, wasn't it? But it wasn't. It wasn't appreciated by me. Wow. Well, no, because again, like, what's that going to do? It's not going to... Oh, thoughts and prayers. We're supposed to be celebrating the NHS. Oh, that's true. I mean, you can still celebrate the NHS and appreciate it, but these nurses were under a lot of pressure at that time, right? They were. They were. So I don't think having a clap on your doorstep was going to do much and what they needed. They needed more money and more recognition and more help and more staff. They did. And I think we're still seeing some of the repercussions of how the pandemic has impacted the NHS. You know, we've got long waiting times. We have delayed ambulance responses. People waiting for hours for just an ambulance to turn up. The staff, as you rightly said, are underpaid and undervalued and have lack of resources with the reduced investments um, because the original vision of the comprehensive free NHS, which was, you know, conceived by these people in the early 20th century, is likely to undergo changes. I don't see mm-hmm. how it can sustain in the same way that it has done. And considering the affordability of providing everything for free throughout a person's lifetime, it's a lot harder to do that because we're living longer. And perhaps the diseases that whilst we've solved in the past from the diphtheria, from the tuberculosis, from the polio, well, now we're challenged with an aging population that need treating longer 
we've got dementia, we've got obesity. So there's these other things that we now have to handle. Okay, interesting. I, I think what the NHS is going through at the moment, because I think, remember, it was even like 15 years ago where you would be watching the news and there would be the top news of the day would be waiting times for the NHS have hit two weeks, mm. right? And people would be absolutely outraged by that idea that someone would have to wait two weeks just to get an appointment. And now people don't even think twice about the prospect of a six to eight week appointment time, right? And why aren't the media reporting on that? Where's the outrage on that? Almost people have come to accept it. And it makes me wonder, you're completely right, that it's unsustainable at the moment because we're lacking funds, right? But in order to get people behind the idea that we revolutionize or we change up what the NHS is and we offer it in a different way, you have to get people on board. And what's the way that you can do that? And in my opinion, is I think what they're going to do is they're going to let it crumble to the point and we're talking conservatives, they're going to let the NHS crumble, let the NHS suffer until when we as a collective public look and go, well, the only solution is to reform what the NHS is rather than, do you know what I mean? They, they're letting it die in order for us to go, oh, the most obvious solution is to reform it. And that's privatization and all sorts of things. I think it seems to be heading in that direction mm. um there were reports that i did read which I, I don't fully understand but they were suggesting that whatever government is never going to let it truly break because there are different deals that the nhs earn a lot of money from private things that they've sold off that help fund it and so there's mm -hmm. a number of they're not going to let it truly break but obviously what point do they let it go to where it's at breaking point sure well yeah. it's already at breaking you're right point. something does need to be done regardless of who comes in or whatever that the fundamental of the NHS is still there, giving free service to the masses and being able to kind of mm. do the as much as it can, as well as it can. Yeah. Um, but I think regardless of all that, what underpins the NHS is the people, from the doctors, the surgeons, the nurses, the support staff. And so if it wasn't for them that have been administering these treatments over the last 75 years, we'd be screwed. So mm. thank you to them. For sure. So I don't want to downplay the seriousness and obviously we did just touch on that about how the NHS will continue. But I do want to end, I guess, on a, a positive note and some positive facts about the NHS, which didn't quite fit the story, but I think quite nice to end Ooh, on. Is this where we find out how many cotton wool balls they've given out over the 75 years? <laughs> I, I don't have the data on that, but I will try and find out. Great. I want to know how many greyhounds we've treated <laughs> on the taxpayer's dime. <laughs> Um, so in 1978, the world's first baby is born as a result of IVF on the NHS. Yes. Who is this woman? What's her name? Um, Gladys? I don't know. Oh, she would have been, I think she's 30 this year. What year was that? Sorry. 1978. So she'll be 40 odd. Okay. In the following year, in 1979, the first successful bone marrow transplant on a child takes place. Mm-hmm. In 1987, the world's first liver, heart, and lung transplant is carried out at Papworth Hospital. Yeah, on the NHS. Well, all on the same patient? I don't know, actually. That's a good question. Yeah, God, you must have been really messed up to be, like, needing all those things. I... What happened? <laughs> yeah. um, hopefully not. I hope... Probably separate, right? I think so. Oh, wow, a lot of firsts. Yeah. 
1994, the NHS Organ Donor Register is launched. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's some other facts. The NHS is the largest employer in the UK mm-hmm. and the eighth largest in the world. Wow, the eighth largest in the world. Yep, I think up to a few years ago it was the fifth, but it's gone down a few places. Uh-huh. So there's 1.34 million employees. And some other companies that are ahead of it are the US Department of Defense. I think that's the top. Mm-hmm. China's People's Liberation Army. Mm-hmm. And Walmart and McDonald's. Wow, so interesting how the first two are war-related. <laughs> and then you've got um, obesity epidemic contributors. And a supermarket. And a supermarket. Yeah. yeah. Um, when the NHS launched 75 years ago, it had a much smaller budget today, even with inflation. Mm-hmm. It had a budget of 437 million, which was the equivalent of around 15 billion in today's value. Mm-hmm. And so today's budget, or I say today's, I think the 2023 budget is around 160 billion. Wow. That's a lot. It is, yeah. It's still, I mean, it's still. That's inflation not for you, kids. <laughs> and one of the most expensive treatments costs around 340,000 pounds per year. Treatments? Is that going to be like dialysis or something? Well, it's a drug to treat an ultra-rare blood disorder. So you're kind of close. Mm. But yeah, £340,000 per year. Yeah, that's crazy. What? Why is it so high? Is it a brand new drug or something? Well, I guess pharmaceuticals or whatever. It's quite rare, number one, the investment. Mm. But, you know, you're paying. Wow, and the NHS will just pay for that. Yeah. And lastly, which the title alludes to, Leeches are still used by the NHS today to reduce blood loss and save limbs. There is a guy near Swansea who is the official NHS leech farmer. Shut up. Gross. Yeah. He also, I think, sources them out to other countries and things uh-huh. like that. But um, yeah, and that's that's it. So let's hope we're celebrating the 100 years of the NHS in 2048. But that's uh, a roundup of its history before 1948 and the 75 years after it. It was really good. Good. 75 years. I can't believe it, though. Yeah. Years to the next 25 years, I guess. I yes. Said. We'll we'll come back and do the 100 years of the NHS podcast then. So that's our episode on the NHS. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Compendium, an assembly of fascinating and intriguing things. Remember, you can find us on Instagram at The Compendium Podcast. You can also send us an email at thecompendiumpod at gmail.com. And we always love hearing from you with your comments and suggestions. So please follow, subscribe and recommend to a friend. Until we meet again in the next episode, stay safe, stay curious. See ya. See you later.